Can you imagine what it would be like if there wasn't love? Can you picture what life would become? Without love, there'd be no compassion, no comfort, no peace. Without love, there'd be no caring, no giving, no kindness. Without love, we would be consumed by selfishness and filled with arrogance. Without love, grace would have never been offered. Mercy would have been unimaginable. When you add love to the equation, everything changes. Love is patient, love is kind, not envious or prideful. Love puts others before ourselves, chooses peace over anger. Love protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres. Love changes everything. We are wrapping up a series for this month of March. Next week, believe it or not, we start Holy Week. We start Palm Sunday and we go right through. It's so incredible that we're already there. Uh, but we've been looking at a series uh, titled Fight the Good Fight. And the idea is that we are called, like Paul, to fight the good fight of faith, like Timothy, to fight the good fight of faith. And to me, uh, this partly means how do we uh, maintain our, the integrity of our faith in a world that's constantly trying to squeeze us into its mold? That's the image I have in my brain. Just this great kind of pressure on us at all times to conform to the pattern of this world. How in the midst of that do we maintain the integrity of our faith, both personally and as a community as we go forward during these times? What do we hold on to? And there's lots of things. We could talk about uh, creeds and confessions and, and doctrinal statements and lots of other things. But I've decided to pick up four different emphases, four different movements that we're holding on to to help us to fight the good fight of faith. And if you were with us in our footnotes class uh, before the uh, service starts, then you'll know where some of these movements come from, some of these emphases. They really come from the great evangelical awakening of the 18th and 19th centuries. And even though the word evangelical today, some people have problems with it because of its association perhaps, but back then the evangelical movement brought huge changes, societal changes, political changes. And so we're learning from the movements of the past. Well, there's four emphases in that movement, and that's been our talking points for these sermons the last four Sundays, starting with the Bible. As we fight the good fight of faith, hold on to Scripture. These are God-breathed words. Don't stray too far from them. Don't stray at all from them. Hold on to Scripture because this is useful in fighting the good fight. We need to know the Bible and be part of the story of Scripture as we understand God's Word as it's delivered to us. But the Bible isn't an endpoint, is it? The Bible is a waypoint. And that brings us to our second emphasis, and that is Jesus, because the Bible ultimately points us to Christ. These are the words that testify about me. So this is a faithful witness that directs us toward Jesus. And so in fighting the good fight, hold on to Jesus, and in particular, 
hold on to the cross. The cross wasn't very popular back in the time of Paul and the apostles, and it still isn't popular today to talk about a suffering Savior. But we hold on to the cross. But we hold on to the cross because it points us to something else, right? It points us to the resurrection. And when we understand the cross and the resurrection, we get the gospel. That's the third thing we're holding on to. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and then he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. And that event in history becomes the heart for the gospel message. But it's not just something to believe. The gospel is also something to share. And we talked last week about using your words. Hopefully you had a chance to use your words uh, last week. Uh, Something about the gospel. Words of declaration. Jesus is alive. Words of invitation. Come and see. Words of explanation. This is my story and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) As we go through the sharing of the gospel together. But here's the final point. As we move through the Bible, to the cross, to the gospel, the words of the gospel will ring empty if there is no love. And that's the end point that I want to talk about in this series, compassion. Compassion is the essential outcome of all that we've been talking about. The Bible that leads us to the cross, that leads us to the great and glorious gospel of Jesus but it needs to be inhabited by compassion of the people of God in the world today. So we're going to turn in a moment to a couple of verses in 1 John. In some ways, I mentioned this this to the uh, footnotes class this morning, I should probably just just read the verses and shut up because the verses, and you'll see in a moment, they are so clear to us about our duty and our call in the gospel to show compassion to the world. 1 John is a special letter, and it's not very long. You can read it in probably half an hour, uh, maybe a little faster if you're a faster reader. But it has two incredibly clear statements about God. The first statement comes in the very first chapter, and it says simply this, God is light. I love it. We don't have a lot of really definitive statements about God throughout Scripture, but John provides us with this one. God is light. And that speaks somewhat to the holiness of God, to the righteousness of God, but it also speaks about the truth. And as we search for truth, we find our truth, and we find the truth of the universe in God. God is light. But then in the second half of the letter, John gives us another definitive statement about God. He says what? Anybody know? God is love. God is love. God is light, he is the truth, and God is love. God is full of compassion. And in fact, John would say is compassion itself. God is love. And that's what we have to hold together as we talk about love. Because sometimes when we talk about love, we come up with some kind of mushy sentimentality. (laughs) And that's not what love is about. Love has to be anchored by the truth. And truth has to be delivered in love. And those two things, God is light, God is love, go together. There's a a commentator uh, mentioned this. uh, Karen Pryor is her name. She said, when love is unmoored from unchanging truth, it becomes mere sentiment. So hear that clearly. (laughs) When we're sharing in love, we also are meant to speak the truth. 
One of my other favorite stories, I keep saying this is my favorite story. I think if we look back over the years, I would have a lot of favorite stories. Here's one of them. Uh, Jesus is walking along and a rich young man comes up to Jesus and the rich young man wants to know what he should do to inherit eternal life. And what does Jesus say? He says, well, keep the commandments, right? And the young man said, yes, I'm a Sunday school superstar. I have kept those commandments since I was born. And Jesus looked at him with compassion. Something moved in Jesus' heart. And he said to him, but there's one thing you lack. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And the young man went away deeply saddened. What an interesting snapshot into how Jesus pulls together truth and compassion, right? He didn't run after that kid and say, hey, you know what, buddy? I was just kidding. Just sell some of it and uh, it'll be fine. Then just come along and we'll work things out as we go. You can give a little here, give a little there. He knew that this rich young man had been entrapped by greed, perhaps, but he was entrapped by his wealth. And Jesus put his finger on the very thing that was holding him back. And so even though Jesus is deeply moved with love and compassion for this man, he still says, but there's something you need to do. And you need to release yourself from this in order to fully experience the life that I have for you. So love and truth coming together is so absolutely essential. But let's flip that coin. Yes, when love is unmoored from unchanging truth, it becomes mere sentiment. But as Francis Schaeffer says this, biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. Do you see there's two sides to this coin, right? You have to hold both together because if we're always just preaching the truth and um, we're not showing that with compassion, that becomes incredibly ugly. I think I've shared this story before. I meant to check with Christine to see if it was actually true. <clears throat> She'll tell me after. But when we were first uh, dating and getting to know one another many moons ago, um, I had just come back from Scotland from theological education, from uh, a year of preaching to the heathen in England, and uh, I was fired up for God. <clears throat> I was full of vim and vigor. I don't know what else. And uh, there were certain things that I held as infallible truths, and I held them with all my might. Um, I used to preach on streets in England and Scotland, and I used to do a lot of kind of crazy things when I think back on it. So I remember one time sitting with Christine and explaining this great truth. I won't say what it is because I'm a little embarrassed now, but, uh, but I was explaining this great truth that was so essential to the gospel, and I was getting fired up about it. I looked at her, and I realized there were tears in her eyes. And somehow my great truth about the cross and about how Jesus only died for some people. There, I said it. How people, Jesus only died for some people, the elect few, was hurting her soul. You ever discovered that? That sometimes it's, it's not the truth itself. We can debate the truth, but it's sometimes the way we hold it and the way we communicate it. And we do it in such a way that we hurt others. I think that's what Francis Schaeffer is saying here, that biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. And so we need this together, right? God is light. God is love. We need to hold on to the truth. 
We need to do it with compassion. And that's what we find in the text that we're about to read. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. Anybody know John 3.16? Yes? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Okay, 1 John 3.16 says this. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let us not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Amen. And that's the end of the sermon. <laughs> it kind of should be, right? It's, I mean, it's, it's pretty straightforward. John lays it out for us. He lays it on the line. Yeah, we have this wonderful truth in the gospel. And we believe it and we use our words to communicate it. But without love, it's just like clanging a bunch of cymbals around. It's just making noise. And so we have to show this gospel by our love and by our actions. Well, this is what compassion is about. The word compassion actually means to suffer with. That's the real meaning as you break down how compassion was formed together, that actual word. It means to suffer with. It means to be so moved in our gut by the suffering of others that we take action. To allow ourselves to be moved at that gut level. This is where I love the King James Version. Anybody a big King James Version fan? That's why I did all my memory work, right? But sometimes I just love the language that it uses. So here's, here's the verse in the King James. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? The bottom line, don't shut your bowels up. <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, your bowels of compassion. But that's the, the sense that we get in the Scripture, that compassion comes from the gut. It comes from, from, from the, the most in-depth part of your being. And when we're moved at the gut level to do something to alleviate the suffering of another, that's compassion. That's what we're being called to in the verses in 1 John. In fact, the first word that God uses to describe his character in Exodus chapter 34, when he's, when he's given the commandments to Moses, the first word that God used to describe his own character is compassionate. God himself is compassionate. And the word in Hebrew is closely related to the word for womb. There it is again. This womb of God, <laughs> this internal uh, mothering instinct, this compassion that God has for his children and for all creation is this internal sense. But it's not just a feeling. This is the important thing about compassion. Compassion gets involved. Compassion takes action. When others keep their distance from those who are suffering, compassion prompts us to act on their behalf. That's a big part of compassion, and maybe the big part of the difference between empathy and compassion. Empathy allows us to uh, experience the suffering of another in such a way that we feel it's our own. That's kind of what empathy is like. We, we have that sensibility to the suffering of others. But compassion takes it a step further. 
compassion to takes, takes action in order to alleviate that suffering. Well, the Bible doesn't give a dictionary definition of compassion. You can't turn to a particular verse and just say, this is how it's formed, just what I've explained here. Instead, what the Bible does is gives us a picture of compassion. It demonstrates compassion for us. And as I thought about all the different verses and stories that demonstrate compassion, can you guess which one I came to? Anybody want to hazard a guess? Ten points if you do. The story I came to is the Good Samaritan. I mean, it's the definitive watershed story on what compassion looks like. We often talk from this pulpit, and I'm sure you've heard Eric and Samuel and myself say, the, the basic nature of our faith is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. But who's our neighbor? And what does it look like to love our neighbor? Well, we don't have to wonder about that because Jesus actually answered that very question for us. And so I'm going to read a little bit of the story of the Good Samaritan and then just give three quick ingredients of compassion that we find from that story. Luke chapter 10 and verse 30 to 37. It's not on the screen. Uh, this was a last minute addition. Sorry, tech team. I didn't get it in in time. Luke chapter 10 and uh, verse 30. This is what Jesus says. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up, and they left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then, when he, then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Do you hear some of the... Jesus is, is teasing this guy, I think, a little bit. I mean, this is the obvious answer, right? The, the man can't answer any other way except for to say, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus says, yes, now go and do the same. That's compassion. Well, here's three ingredients of compassion. We could talk a lot about this story. I hope you've explored it and thought about it. But quickly, here's three ingredients of compassion from the Good Samaritan story. First of all, proximity. Proximity. Those first two characters that saw the man there, they avoided. They literally went to the other side of the road. What, what uh, made the, the Good Samaritan stand out? What was this compassion? He went near to him. Proximity. Compassion requires us to be in proximity to those who are suffering. That's the hard part of compassion. Compassion requires us to be in proximity to those who are suffering. I think it's fairly easy, not just as individuals, but as a congregation, to remove ourselves from the suffering of the city around us, especially when we live in the suburbs. We have that tendency, don't we? 
And it's so easy for us to view it through a screen or on our phone that we can simply turn off or send a quick donation to. And that's, that's okay. Sometimes we need to do that. But true compassion requires us to be in proximity with those who are suffering. One of my very early regrets as a young youth pastor uh, occurred when we had, and I've mentioned this incident to some people before, but we had the deaths of uh, five of our youth in White Rock in a six-week period. And it was sometimes through accident, uh, through suicide, one after the other, like a domino effect. It went right through. And it was overwhelming, to be honest. And I still picture some of those youth. Uh, Tula Ellard was part of our youth group. And, and so it was an incredibly, overwhelmingly sad time. At that time, I was working with um, Work and Learn, White Rock, South Surrey, Work and Learn. And it was a school for kids that had been kicked out or dropped out of school trying to get back in. And one of the students there died. And what had happened is he and a fellow student had stolen a car and they went joyriding and drove it off a cliff and he was killed. And so I got a call from the principal. Now, remember, I'm 23, <laughs> something like that. Got a call from the principal. These, uh, these guys that knew the, the boy that died, they're outside just playing basketball. They won't come in. They don't know what to do with themselves. Would you come and be with them? And I was like, no. No. I mean, I was like, I didn't say that right away. I just said, well, I don't have a car right now. It's a little far away to walk. I just can't quite get there. Um, I'm sure they'll be fine. What I was really saying inside is, I have no idea what to say. I don't think I'll be able to help. I'm way in over my head here. What am I supposed to do with these teenagers that I'm sometimes a little afraid of? We couldn't give them knives when you were doing pumpkin carving because, well, stabby, stabby. But so you, you had to be, it was, it was a unique group of kids that we were working with. And I said, no, I didn't go. And that still haunts me because I think so much of compassion is just showing up. 90% of ministry is just being there. And still to this day, I find myself reluctant to go because I think I'm not well equipped for it. I don't know what to say. I don't think I'll be helpful. But there's something about compassion that says we need to be in proximity to those who are suffering. That's the first ingredient. Second ingredient we've mentioned already, and that is empathy. Not only to be in proximity, but to actually care about the other person. Those first two characters that saw the wounded man, they just cared about themselves. And maybe they had legitimate reasons. Maybe they were he heading to temple worship and they couldn't touch a dead body because that would disqualify them from worshiping in the temple. Or maybe they were concerned for their own safety. The robbers might have still been around, whatever it was. They were so concerned for their own safety that they didn't allow themselves to feel the pain of the other person. But the Good Samaritan did. It says he had compassion, and so he went over. He left room in his own soul to feel the pain of another. Empathy is the ability to relate to another person's pain as if it were your own. Now, sometimes we can't fully understand what people are going through in their lives and in their pain and in their own journey. And sometimes their grief is their grief, whatever that grief is. But if we can leave room in our soul uh, for the pain of others, then we begin to practice empathy. And that's the second ingredient of compassion. Proximity, empathy, 
And then the third one is this, generosity. Generosity. He mobilized his own resources, whatever he had, to help this man. I mean, this guy was equipped, though. You have to acknowledge it. He came, like, with a first aid kit. He had a donkey. He had, you know, some coins in his pocket. This guy was obviously someone of affluence, I think. We actually, in our um, uh, footnotes class, have been exploring some of the, the early evangelical uh, movers and shakers. And we realized that a lot of them were people of affluence that used their affluence and position. They used what they had actually to affect change in uh, society and in politics. And so we are called to be generous with what we have. Some of those characters uh, in that early evangelical movement, they practiced something called reverse tithing. They actually gave away 90% and lived off 10%. They were generous with what they had. Whatever it is we have, and it's not just money we're talking about, we're talking about our time, we're talking about our emotional energy. Sometimes we need to learn to be generous because that's part of compassion. So those are the ingredients that we see in the Good Samaritan story. Proximity, empathy, and generosity. And now a word of warning from your sponsor. Because compassion is risky business. And that's also evident in the story of the Good Samaritan. There was an incredible risk that this guy was taking as he tried to live out this calling to be compassionate to the man in need. And we could do whole sermons on the pitfalls of compassion. And we have to be really aware of this. There is such a thing as compassion fatigue. Some of you have experienced that. Maybe as you're, you're caring for an aging parent and you just are worn down. Or you're engaged as a, maybe a nurse, or maybe you're involved in healthcare, or maybe you're involved in caring for people at a street level, whatever it is. And, and you're constantly faced with the brokenness of humanity. And there is such a thing as compassion fatigue that we have to be aware of. Yesterday after a meeting, I went up to um, Care West. Some of you know the place and uh, different locations of Care West where people go for rehabilitation. And I went to spend some time there and do some visiting. And uh, I was at one point somewhat overwhelmed by the people walking up and down those hallways. People that were now, you know, missing a limb and not walking anymore, but in the wheelchair. Some people that were so drugged up that they just, they didn't seem coherent at all. Other people that were broken, not only in their bodies, but in their spirits. They were in there for so long that they didn't see a way out. And to be confronted with the brokenness of humanity in body and in spirit, it takes a toll from us. And we have to be aware of that. There's also a danger in compassion in this, that sometimes we can mobilize our affluence, our wealth, our energy, and actually do more harm than good. (laughs) Have you ever been part of that accidentally? We used to mobilize uh, mission teams to go uh, different parts of the world uh, through CBM. And there used to be a practice to take down a whole bunch of stuff to wherever we're going. And one of our teams, they collected all kinds of material things, uh, all kinds of school supplies in particular. And as they went down and gave it out to the people in that particular small area, they suddenly realized that there was a guy already who lived there who was selling school supplies. But now he was out of business because they had overwhelmed the system with their affluence. 
And there's stories of that over and over again, how sometimes in our rush to be compassionate, we're not thoughtful or careful. And so there are ways that we need to do this well. But the burden of this text and the burden of this message is actually to encourage greater risk in compassion. Because I think for most of us, a burning out or making the mistake of, of causing harm, that's not our problems. Our, our problem is that we actually need to mobilize our resources and take greater risk in showing compassion to the world around us. And maybe I'm not speaking individually, but I'm speaking maybe even as a congregation. How do we put ourselves in proximity to the suffering of our neighbors in such a way that we mobilize our resources and alleviate some of that suffering. The text says this, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's the sacrifice of compassion. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this, we must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or don't do, and more in the light of what they suffer. That's an interesting quote to me. How does it change our perspective of one another? Sometimes when, when we're going even into a retail situation and we realize that the person across the, uh, the desk from us has been a little bit rude to us, and so we, we are rude back or we complain or those kind of things, and, and yet we don't know what that person is suffering in those moments. What if we began to understand one another, the burdens that we carry and the suffering that we face, the grief that we share, and maybe we would see ourselves and one another more compassionately because of that. So how do we maintain the integrity of our faith against a world that wants to squeeze us into its mold? Well, we hold on to scripture because it leads us to Jesus and the cross. And we hold on to Jesus because he leads us to the gospel. And we hold on to the gospel because it leads us to love our neighbor as ourselves. In this way, this is how we fight the good fight of faith. In this way, we stay true to the mission to which God has called us as a church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you first loved us even before we made movement in your direction, you've loved us with an everlasting love. We thank you that we can stand here confident in that love, not only for ourselves, but for the whole world. And Father, our prayer is that you would help us to live that love out in our daily lives, within the truth of your gospel, so that others might come to know you and experience the grace and the forgiveness and the goodness that is found in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.